0: You're listening to the London Review of Books podcast. In today's episode, Alan Bennett reads his Diary for 2021. Diary for 2021 by Alan Bennett 31st of December 2020 My year ends when Rupert takes me up to a depot in Peckwater Street in Camden, which has been kitted out as a vaccination centre. Though neither of us quite knows where it is, we realise we must be getting close from the number of 80-year-olds and carers making their way off the Kentish Town Road, all on the same errand. Rupert isn't allowed in, and I go fairly briskly through a series of waiting rooms before reaching the vaccination room. It's busy, but quiet, and notable considering the presence of so many aged patients for the absence of chuntering. Everyone, not surprisingly, seems in good humour. My only complaint is that since I'm isolating with my partner, it would seem sensible to vaccinate him too. But then, not all the staff at the centre have been vaccinated either. 15th of January 2021 Channel 8, London Live, can be relied on for 1940s films, many of them rubbish. Today it's the Chiltern Hundreds, which isn't rubbish, but a well-plotted light comedy written by William Douglas Hume, with the legendary A. E. Matthews, Cecil Parker and David Tomlinson. I know the play well, or should, having been in it at school in the Tomlinson part, After a succession of female roles, including Katharina in The Taming of the True, my voice had broken at long last, and this was the first male role I was allowed to play. I say I know the play well, but in those days I just used to learn my own part, and that not very well, plus a rough acquaintance with my cues, and no sense at all of the plot or direction of the play. I don't think I ever understood what The Taming of the Shrew was about. My co-star in the Shakespeare, and who played Beecham in the Chiltern Hundreds, was John Scaife, a friend whom I lost sight of after university, and only this last year discovered had become a distinguished molecular biologist at Edinburgh, but died young in the 90s from AIDS. 17th of January Rupert returns from a walk with Owen, his brother, and his nephew, Freddie, aged five, worried because he'd been unable to resist giving Freddie a kiss. Freddie is still at infant school. Had Rupert been vaccinated when I was, we would not be concerned. 18th of January I've worn pretty much the same outfit since this business began, only varying it as the weather's got colder to put on a thicker pullover. This has something to do with not yielding to circumstance and reminds me of fellow conscripts on the Russian course during my national service in 1953. It was a very relaxed unit and we did not have to wear uniform except on ceremonial occasions and were issued with official civilian clothes though one could wear one's own choice of outfit. One colleague refused this better option and insisted on wearing the army issue kit, reasoning that to wear one's own clothes was to give the military something, the wear and tear on the clothes, to which it was not entitled. The army civvies were ill-fitting, itchy and unbecoming and came from a depot at Woking, a woking suit, no smoking suit was one of the cabaret turns we did at the time. 26th of January Yorkshire is inescapable on TV at the moment, which doesn't make it easier not being able to go there. Yorkshire Tea is currently to blame for an admittedly slightly ironic advert about the county's supposed superiority to which I've never particularly subscribed. I'm happy, even proud, to be a freeman of Leeds, especially since, unlike much of the rest of the county, it was not in favour of Brexit. I hope our favourite restaurant in Leeds, Sula Ney, will survive lockdown and we miss the occasional keggery at Betty's in Ilkley. But there's no shortage of programmes about rural Yorkshire and I've lost count of the number of sheep having awkward births in frostbitten fields. Still, it hasn't quite got to the state of Dorset after Hardy, when the county started playing itself as depicted in the novels. Fourth of February Slightly wish I'd lightened my griping about arthritis with a reminiscence of my great-uncle Norris, included in an earlier memoir, but no worse for that. Uncle Norris was, I think, Grandpa Peel's brother and was a wine and spirit merchant by profession. He ended his days in Stafford House, an old people's home in Halifax, but very cheerfully, as he was convinced, and never missed an opportunity of telling you, that he was about to become a millionaire. Why? because he, Norris Peel, had discovered the cure for arthritis, and once this was made known, an arthritis foundation in America would make over to him their entire funding. The cure consisted in cutting off the feet of one's socks and wearing them as anklets. This is what Uncle Norris had done, and he had never had arthritis, so it must be a cure. He had written to many of the notables of the day to tell them the good news. A mixed bag. Winston Churchill, Semprini, Wilfred Pickles, Valdunica. And he would show you a sheaf of their acknowledgments. He's batchy, Dad would say, meaning he's balmy. But it certainly kept him happy. 7th of February Ploughing on with the Francis Bacon biography, a depressing book with irregular critiques of Bacon's work, particularly by David Sylvester, often hard to understand. So much drink in the book that I wonder, had I liked drink more, would it have altered my life and made it more eventful? Not only do I hardly drink, and Rupert neither, but I don't know anyone who does. Peter Cook about the only drunk I've ever known. In New York in the 1980s, I used to like a screwdriver. Two was my limit, with three making me tipsy, which I found delightful. Had I been able to remain in that intermediate state, I suppose I could have been a drunk. One used to see Bacon quite often, as he was a regular guest at George Melley's across the road. The last time was in Paris, when we were having supper at Brasserie Beaufanger. Bacon and his party rose to leave, whereupon all the waiters gathered in the window to watch the great man depart, something I could never imagine happening in London. 14th of February. Watch the beginning of A Matter of Life and Death on BBC Two, where David Niven, having survived his plane crash, comes round on the Norfolk sands. He encounters a naked boy, a goatherd, supposedly, a fanciful notion even in the 1940s. I must have seen the film, famed as the first Royal Command performance, when I was eleven or so, when I found the goatherd very sexy, my brother apart, the first naked boy I'd ever seen and wondered that neither he nor Niven seemed as perturbed as I was at his nakedness. That was, um. Uh, what was the film director of Matter of Life and Death called? Powell, yeah. Michael Powell. Uh, I mean, it was a fanciful notion in, in the 1940s. I mean, the, the notion of a go-third is absurd. Is third. <laughs> I mean, it... Uh, And the nakedness was also, I mean, uh, would be a a fair test of the censor at that time. But uh, anyway, I suppose it was thought to be art. I don't know. 26th of February. Reading about Eric Rebilius, as I have to talk in a film being made by Marjorie Kinmont, I found a good quote on the Second World War. I regretted, quote, that we were being called upon to fight against something regarded as wrong without at the same time having the conviction that we were defending a way of life that was right. H.B. Malaleu in The England of Eric Rebilius My only contribution is that even today Rebilius is still, somehow, a shared secret. 27th of February my hair is getting to be a problem. As children, my brother and I had our hair cut at Mr. Shaw's, the barber on Armley Moor Top in Leeds. It was a wearisome business after school when the shop was always full, and Mr. Shaw, who was bald, never condescended to talk to us children, who in any case were wrapped in everybody's and picture post and even the occasional Lilliput. When we lived in Headingley, it was Mr. Oddy on Shire Oak Street, another bald and taciturn fellow, but with classier magazines, in particular Britannia and Eve, notable for illustrations of bare-breasted ladies driving chariots in the genteel porn that was the speciality of Fortunino Matania. My dad had his hair cut on the same parade as his butcher shop in Meanwood, though never to the satisfaction of my mother, who claimed he came home looking like a scraped cock. She meant a plucked fowl, but had no thought of being misunderstood. Today's barber is my partner Rupert Thomas, who, while professing to admire my abundant locks, manages to make me look like a blonde Hitler. He was also wondering if he could save the Offcots in case they might find a market on eBay. 2nd of March I've written somewhere of one of Dad's words, splother. Today, remember another. Jollop. Any sort of liquid mess, like blemanche. say. I'm never sure these words are not Dad, but dialect. Another was tittle me, meaning I don't care either way. Other nonsense words came out of his talking to the cat. Uh, Hardy used to say or uh, used to t- Tiddlywinkum Poop's Trot he used to This is one of how anyway, I don't know why I know that anyway Fourth of March I'm too young for this a boy on TV on his bereavement. The vicar in attendance "'as a cross tattooed on the back of his hand, "'which I note without reproof. Eleventh of March. "'It should not be forgotten "'that with his customary foresight and good judgment, "'one of the first acts of the current Prime Minister "'was to hasten to the side of President Trump, "'whom he then shipped across the Atlantic "'to meet Her Majesty the Queen.' and that it was the now much-abused Speaker John Burco, who ruled out any thought of Trump addressing a joint session of Parliament. His reward was to be refused the customary peerage on retirement by the Prime Minister, who happily doled out peerages to umpteen millionaires, all of them donors to the Tory party. And so we go on. 18th of March Second Covid jab this morning, done as was the first at Peckwater Street in Kentish town, with everyone so helpful and considerate. At every turn, someone smiling, loving almost. 23rd of March. Asked by the Guardian if I would like to interview Andrew Macmillan, the poet. Though I'm an admirer, I say no only because if I did, it would be as much about myself as about Macmillan and how his life has been very different from mine. 24th of March. Rupert asked me about Worship Street, where I lodged in the early days of Beyond the Fringe in 1961. Worship Street is in the East End, um, near Bishopsgate. It was a Philip Webb building, date 1862, with a workshop on the ground floor and accommodation above, with the lease belonging to Henrietta Roberts, later Dombey, the daughter of Michael Roberts and Janet Adam Smith. What occasioned Rupert's interest was his having been to a very grand house for his magazine, World of Interiors, the expensive decoration of which included several Ben Nicholson's. This reminded me that over the fireplace in the very run-down sitting room at Worship Street was an early Ben Nicholson of cottages in the Lake District. A lovely picture and a gift from the artist. the Roberts family having been evacuated to Penrith on the outbreak of war and friendly with the Nicholsons. 28th of March, Palm Sunday. Remember this apropos a joke of Jonathan Miller's, who, seeing a woman coming back from church holding a cross made of reeds, said it was literally the last straw. First of April. There's currently a row going on about late-night raves on Primrose Hill, where, lacking toilet facilities on the hill, revelers overflow, literally into the surrounding street, much to the disgust of the residents. A hooded boy, venturing to take a leak at the bottom of Rothwell Street, finds himself shouted at by Lisa next door, and also remonstrated with by Rupert as we are passing. In the middle of pissing, he can't stop, and is apologetic, zipping up as quickly as he can and hurrying off, wailing that there aren't any facilities on Primrose Hill, and so almost a sympathetic figure. 15th of April Thinking to have something to read in Yorkshire, I send out for the new Philip Roth biography, but it's so heavy I decide it will be too much to carry. It ought to come with wheels and a lectern. Having it on one's lap is numbing, ironically in view of its subject. The blurb describes the book as breathtaking. Backbreaking would also be true. I'm unexpectedly mentioned as being at the Millers when Roth and Mudge, his girlfriend, came to supper sometime in the 1960s. I'd forgotten that Roth was ill and on Rachel's advice taken to hospital. My recollections of the evening are more embarrassing Talking to Jonathan beforehand, I'd made a poor joke about Portnoy's complaint being the gripes of Roth. I'm sure I wasn't the first to pick up on this, but it was news to Jonathan, so when Roth arrived, he insisted on telling it to its subject. Maybe he even insisted on me repeating it myself. I've no memory of Roth's response. Unamused, I would have thought but remember my own embarrassment as fresh now with Roth dead as it was fifty years ago. 29th of April. On our evening perambulation round the block, we've just ventured back into the Crescent, when Rupert spots in a pile of abandoned stuff outside one of the houses a rise and fall French light fitting, white pottery shade, a little battered, but with the counterweight intact. It's a nice find, though, like it takes owners, we don't need the fitting, but say we did. <laughs> it's cheering for Rupert, who is in turmoil over developments at the magazine and has pretty much decided to resign. 10th of May, Yorkshire. From being an unqualified admirer of Philip Roth, which I still pretty much am, I feel, as I did about Francis Bacon, that I've been told too much. On the plus side, he's very generous, helping friends down on their luck, dispensing large sums without false or self-congratulation. He's always funny, and the book hasn't diminished my admiration for his style or his industry. Though it's hard to envy him his back pain, his sometimes disastrous women, and his two marriages. I like the sound of his brother, Sandy, his mother, and many of his boyhood friends on whom he doesn't turn his back. But it's a fucking big book, which I actually fell over yesterday on my birthday. 24th of May It occurs to me that the whole course of English history would have been changed... Had there been in the bedroom on the wedding night of Catherine of Aragon and Prince Arthur the equivalent of a radler, the dauber who paints the ram so that it leaves a mark when it has served the sheep, rattle Prince Arthur and it would have settled whether the prince had successfully slept with Catherine. There would have been no marriage for Henry VIII and thus no divorce and no reformation. I don't think that has occurred to Hilary Mantel. This is the LRB podcast. If you enjoy listening to it, you'll probably enjoy reading the London Review of Books. To subscribe from just one pound per issue, go to lrb.me/forward/slash/listen. That's lrb.me/forward/slash/listen, or click on the link below. Twenty ninth of May, Yorkshire. I've lost count of the number of times on TV I've seen the sequence whereby a dead lamb is skinned and the skin fitted onto an orphaned lamb, which is then foisted on a bereaved sheep, which is deceived into adopting it as its own. Surely, I think, in a Mendelian misapprehension, sheep will have cottoned on to this subterfuge by now, I don't know whether that's too abstruse, anyway. 30th of May, a poem for Boris, a dead statesman. I could not dig, I dared not rob, Therefore I lied to please the mob. Now all my lies are proved untrue, And I must face the men I slew. What tale shall serve me here among... Mine an angry and defrauded young. It's A Dead Statesman by Rodyard Kipling, from Epitaphs of the War, 1914 18. 3rd of June, Yorkshire. I loved a lovely dinner last night. Poached sole, Dauphinoise potatoes, fresh broad beans, and some samphire. Rupert was disappointed the spots weren't creamier, though this was because he was stingy with the cream. It suited me, though, and I cleaned my plate as he almost invariably does his. 10th of June. Books read. Revelations. The biography of Francis Bacon by Mark Stevens and Annalyn Swan. A curious boy by Richard Forty, Turning the Boat for Home, by Richard Maybe, The Stonemason, by Andrew Ziminski, Kiss Myself Goodbye, by Ferdinand Mount, a lovely book, What is the Grass, Walt Whitman in My Life, by Mark Doty, Pastoral, by James Rebanks, Philip Roth, by Blake Bailey, and William Golding, by John Carey some of them whoppers. 17th of June, Rupert's birthday. Rupert goes into the office for a meeting with the management of Condé Nast, and after 21 years as editor of World of Interiors, gives in his resignation. Then by the 1533 train to Leeds. As we are drawing into Wakefield, I say how much, once upon a time, we would have been looking forward to supper at Sula It's always been closed since lockdown, but on the off-chance, Rupert rings and it's open. The food is no different. Delicious fish and chips and as quick. The waiters come and shake hands. A real birthday present. 29th of June. Write it and it happens, or not. As I'm hauling myself up the stairs for my bath, I remember being wheeled across the stage of the Apollo Theatre in my first play, Forty Years On, in 1968. It was a parody of Oscar Wilde. I was in drag as a putative Lady Bracknell and wheeled by John Gilgood. I can walk, I said only I'm so rich I don't need to. 20th of July. Another hot day, too hot to be out of doors, until, lying on the sofa trying to work in the late afternoon, I hear the rustle of rain. In one of the student flats opposite, a young man has just come out to sit on the balcony. The rain, which is not heavy, does not shift him. He looks up at it, but since he's only in T-shirt and shorts, he probably thinks it doesn't matter, and it's certainly a change. After a while, his toddler daughter comes through the curtains and sits by him, still in the rain. His equanimity is a pleasure to see, and it transfers to the child, as they both sit there, unflinching, quite happy in the rain. Maybe he's teaching her not to be afraid of it, though now there is distant thunder and it's probably this that gets him to his feet. He takes the little girl's hand and they go through the curtains into the dry. When we go out for our evening walk round the block, all trace of rain is gone. The pavements are dry and the sky covered in light clouds. It's one of Larkin's Rain ceased evenings. 22nd of July. Reading in the LRB about Emily Dickinson, whom I'd always thought of as a shy little mouse. Shy she may have been, but no mouse, and one who got her own way, in this lining up with Kafka and Simon Vile, except I'm now told I should say Veil, but I've always said vile, anyway. All three of them mobilised assistance by seeming helpless. 30th of July, Yorkshire. Good exchange with Will Dawson, the young farmer who on Saturday helps in the village shop. Rupert buys a box of matches. Will, no history of arson, I suppose. We have to ask. The only person as quick and as daft is Sam Barnett, but he'd be no good with sheep. 7th of September. We have watched the previous series of David Olusoga's A House Through Time from Bristol and Newcastle, and tonight it's the turn of Leeds. They're excellent programmes, both his commentary and the research, which is sometimes astonishing. Said to beheadingly, I'd have thought this evening's house was more Hyde Park, not far from Cumberland Road, where as a boy I used to go disastrously to Crusader Bible classes. 12th of September. The last few weeks I've been reading Rory Stewart's Occupational Hazards, an account of his time serving in the Coalition Administration of Iraq. He's a courageous man, though it ought to be a depressing book, as for all Stuart's tireless efforts, returning to Iraq a few years later, he finds little of his labours has survived. Still, for all its wearisome futility and the dizzying personnel of tribal politics, his account is inspiring. The work is dangerous, bewildering, and hard-to-tell friend from foe, where he's often deceived. There are dead along the way, and terribly wounded, the deaths and dangers set down laconically by Stuart, though he is as brave and considerate as the best of the military. It's hard to imagine this man, however briefly, as MP for Penrith, and a contender with Boris Johnson, but on this evidence alone he would have been a sounder dealer with our intractabilities, and a more honest one. 26th of September. The doorbell goes around six. I'm dozing, but get there just in time, and it's two lads, nationality uncertain, but not English. They're already in conversation with Rupert, who's talking to them from his office window two floors up. They've come about the room with on their phone various other substantiating documents. They've been told there is a room available here by a woman who is charging them a fee of £600 for the information. Fortunately, they have not yet paid this, as it's obvious even to them that it's a scam. I suppose there are circumstances in which, had they paid the fee, they could have been difficult, even aggressive, but these two were just apologetic and go away rather sadly, one of them saying, it's such a nice street, I liked it. It's a disturbing episode, particularly since the woman has provided a gas bill for authentication. Our gas bill, doctored. Why us, we keep thinking. 29th of September in the evening, we watch the last of David Olusoga's programmes about the house in Headingley, which have been consistently good, and in the information they've turned up, a triumph of research. Tonight's episode covers my lifetime, the war in Leeds, which it rather uncharacteristically overdramatises, even calling it the Blitz, which, so far as Leeds was concerned, it never was. I know this if only because as a child, five at the outbreak of war, I longed for some action, and literally fall out in the shape of shrapnel. We had one piece, the size and contours of which I can see even now, about five inches long on one side and with rifling on the other. Had my brother and I salvaged it ourselves, it would have been more exciting— but I fear it was a swap, with comics the likely currency. There were air raids on Leeds, certainly, and an air raid shelter outside our suburban front door, but compared with the bombing of Sheffield, say, or Hull, Leeds got off lightly. As I wrote in writing Home, the city specialised in the manufacture of ready-made suits and the cultivation of rhubarb, And though the war aims of the German High Command were notoriously quixotic, I imagine a line had to be drawn somewhere. In the programme there's one very brief shot of a tram going past Dad's shop at 92A Otley Road, when I would have been inside at the time, and another of Oliusoga working in the reference library, which was so much part of my life in my teens. But they were terrific programmes, the best kind of social history. 15th of October Controversy about the government insisting that doctors must see patients face to face, though without giving them the resources to do so. When I was young, before the NHS started, whether a doctor was thought to be good depended on if he was known to come out, that is, do home visits, In the mean streets around my grandma's off Tong Road in Leeds, did one see a car, it was likely to be a Humber outside a house where the doctor was visiting. In Wortley, the good doctors were Dr Slaney and Dr Moniz. In Armley was Dr Gordon and Dr Dalrymple, who once lanced a boil on Dad's neck before resuming his Sunday dinner. Charge two and six. 12th of November, Yorkshire There's one staircase in the cottage and at the top of it, the landing and a resident spider. On duty, hearing one coming up the stairs it darts off under the bedroom floor. How long it's lived here, it's hard to say certainly for years though whether it's always the same spider I've no idea. How long do spiders live? Doubtless someone will tell me. It's quite large, unthreatening, a familiar rather than a friend, with a shared tenancy of the house. We have an occasional mouse, but not resident at the one location. It makes no web that we can see. It has no name. It is just there. Country Life 14th of November Sometime before lockdown, and with no thought of swearing off fossil fuels, I order some coal from Mr. Redhead, our coal merchant in Ingleton. The coal shed, halfway down the garden, must once have been the earth closet. A change of use I rather regret, as when we were evacuated to Byrill Farm in Nidderdale on the outbreak of war, "'They were still using an earth closet. "'It was situated in the orchard, "'and though as a five-year-old I fear I thought it disgusting, "'in retrospect, Sojourns here with the door open "'and Tommy the horse grazing in the orchard, seem idyllic. "'Our ex-earth closet, now the coal shed, "'must once again be facing a change of use, "'though still full of the unused coal from before lockdown.' This is coal, I imagine my descendants being told. It used to be fuel. Now it's, what, a relic? One can only hope so. 16th of November. Deafness can make the world more intriguing. Today, Rupert goes on the tube for the first time since lockdown. I ask how it was. Rupert. "'Busy. Lots of headmasters.' What he actually said was, "'Busy. Lots had masks on.' 10th of December. Informed by the editors that this is the 1001st edition of the LRB, I am asked for my thoughts, though I'm not sure I have many. On the rare occasions I've come down to the LRB office, in Little Russell Street, I found it quite daunting. The staff, remarkably young, undergraduate almost, and very bright. They obviously intimidated Mary Kay when she was editor, as seated round three sides of a square, the slightest and silliest remark could be overheard, so that Mary Kay, never a stentorian voice, for privacy used practically to mime. In the early days I would get cross because Carl Miller tried to take out my jokes, often through not understanding them. He seldom gave a verdict on the piece, so you were never sure you'd come up to scratch. This withholding of praise persisted after his departure and became something of a house style. Miss Shepherd never said thank you, and nor did the LRB, though it smelt better. One of the most distinguished contributors was Ian Hamilton. Writing about literary marriages, he says somewhere that their frequent break-up can be put down to the wives being insufficiently worshipful. I felt that about the LRB. It was insufficiently worshipful. Hamilton himself was quite stern and sparing in his compliments. So I'm proud that one of my pieces for the paper occasioned a letter of appreciation in his tiny, tiny script. It was as if the writing were like mustard and cress, just beginning to sprout. You can read Alan Bennett's diary for 2021 in the latest issue of the LRB, along with James Meek on Russian foreign policy, Patricia Lockwood on Karl Knausgaard, and Jenny Turner's report from COP26. That's it from us for 2021. Thank you for listening and Happy New Year. The regular LRB podcast will return on Tuesday the 25th of January. In the meantime, we have three guest episodes from a new podcast presented by our US editor, Adam Schatz. It's called Myself with Others, and next week you can listen to Adam in conversation with Margot Jefferson.